Today's episode may not be for you, because today we're going to approach the topic of corporate wellness. But wait, before you move on to another episode or some other content, I want to make you a promise. If you give our guest a few moments of your time, he will teach you something that you can apply in your own life. I mean, look, here's the thing. You can't have corporate wellness without healthy employees, healthy people. And health is not just about your physical fitness. At the end of the day, you simply cannot be fully present at work or fully available to your coworkers without some cultivated patience, self-awareness, and a non-judgmental attitude. Basically, regardless of the macro view, whether we're talking globally, locally, or on your own team, if we aren't okay with what's inside of us, we're not going to be able to add value elsewhere. So how can we practice being a better leader, a mindful, conscious leader? And what exactly is the connection between mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and our interpersonal relationships? We will approach these topics in our episode today with our special guest and mindfulness instructor, Luis Gill. Luis has over a decade of experience practicing and teaching at centers and organizations all over North America. He has trained and worked extensively with the community of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a certified teacher of the Search Inside Yourself program born at Google. If you're not familiar, these programs take an evidence-based approach, combining neuroscience and basic mindfulness techniques to teach practical self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and other related leadership tools. If you care about yourself and the work that you do in this world, this indeed is an episode for you. So let's jump in and swim in the wealth of knowledge that lies within the mind and the body and the life of Louise Gill. Luis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lance. Very happy to be here. Very excited to be here. Thank you, Claudio, for the invitation. Very happy to be here. Awesome. Well, we can't wait to dive in. In fact, let's do exactly that. Let's dive straight in to the term mindfulness off the cushion. Before we ask you some of the ways that you like to practice mindfulness off the cushion, let's go to the term. What does that term mindfulness off the cushion mean to you? It means a lot of things. What came to mind was to share a story of how I got to know that concept in the first place. It's a bit of a long-winded story, but there's a point, I promise. I moved to New York in 2013, summer of 2013. 
I came here, the context is I had been in Miami for a while. I'm from Venezuela. Coming here was, you know, the latest version of how do I not be in Venezuela because it is challenging to be there right now. Came here, no job. Had like, I don't know, $3,000, some friends. Like it wasn't, I wasn't homeless, but it wasn't like the most thriving situation, right? So I've been sitting for a while in, in more like strict contexts, you know, like Tibetan traditions, Zen traditions, very, very strict sitting, the breath, the cushion, very, very formal. Got to New York, total overwhelm. New York is a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot going on here. So I was very overwhelmed. And I had just finished reading my first book from Thich Nhat Hanh, which is Peace is Every Step, which is one of his wonderful beginner practice, uh, beginners in practice books. I read it and I was, I went to school for engineering. Like it, it was a very pragmatic, hands-on, just like ap- application of mindfulness to life. I read the book. It was, it felt like wonderful theory. It was, it was very poetic. It's very seemingly simple. And I was, I was kind of, I was very curious. So I got to New York, looked up his name. This group showed up, met on Friday nights. I showed up to the group. The last portion of our meeting that evening is what they call Dharma sharing, which is a sharing circle. The context is I'm from Venezuela. I grew up in a house, a wonderful family, but we were not the most communicationally skilled. I would say my family was communicationally challenged, right? So I didn't have very strong tools to communicate with myself, let alone others. It was the main reason why I got into practice in the first place. And I show up to this group, people that don't know each other. And there's a formal setting and the instructions, but it's very simple. It's very like familiar. It's very open and, and, and engaging. And people that don't know each other start sharing the most, the deepest, most personal things. And they do so in a way that felt very natural, very compassionate, very kind. People were receiving these like seemingly harsh, not harsh, hard things to hold in the most kind of like natural way. And I was like, who are you? And how do I learn this thing you're all doing right now? Like, I have never met you. And it just felt so easeful, you know? So I started investigating more. And then I ended up finding out about Plum Village, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition. They have a number of monasteries across the world, one of them being very close to New York. And I find out about this thing he calls engaged Buddhism, which is, you know, exactly that. How to apply the Buddhist practices to life. How to cultivate this quality of paying attention that is kind, that is very curious, that is very um, open, playful even, but also discerning, disciplined to any part of life. So if you go to a Plum Village Monastery, which I started doing a lot and continue to do so multiple times a year, you'll see the schedule. There's very little sitting. You sit for like half an hour in the morning, maybe half an hour in the afternoon, and that's it. But everything else... It's an activity. It's all mindful, mindful sitting, mindful walking, mindful eating, mindful sharing, mindful napping, mindful all the things. And so repeated exposure to this idea was a way in which it really landed for me that this idea of like mindfulness off the cushion. Once I had learned to stabilize the mind through sitting in the cushion, through this community, I learned and continue to learn the skill of transferring this is a way of paying attention to anything else. So the long, this is a very long answer to your question. At different times in my life, anything can be mindfulness of the cushion. Today, like these days, how I practice that beyond my sitting practice, when I cook, very, very fun to just be chopping the vegetables, making the food, cook a lot for myself and also for others. It's a wonderful way to practice 
I do a lot of walking meditation because I live in New York, so I walk a lot. I don't walk. I don't do like mindful walking, like monastery style in Manhattan. That's suicidal. But it's, <laughs> I, I'm very, very mindful of what's around me or try to be very mindful of what's around me as I walk. There's a lot to see in New York. There's a lot, there's a lot of input. You open the door and there's a lot, a lot like coming at you. There's many ways that are very enjoyable in which I practice mindfulness of the Christian. And also where I found it the most fruitful is at times of discomfort, say at work, before I join a call with someone I don't necessarily want to talk to a few breaths, set an intention, and then use this conversation or approach this conversation the same way that I learned or first saw in that sharing group that Friday night when I first went to that group, the Sangha uh, here in Manhattan. Approach a conversation having a clear intention, having a clear aiming to have a clear presence of receiving what's challenging with care, making space. So, Extending this kind of way, paying attention to anything I do is what I aspire to. And that shifts, you know, there's times when I've been like obsessed with like walking. I just did mindful walking and then obsessed with like mindful talking. I became like, you know, a bit annoying about how much I was, I was playing that. But, uh, but it shifts a lot. But, but the core idea behind it is this idea that I continue to learn through the Plum Village community. Anything can be meditation once I've learned how to pay attention in this way and I can shift it or transfer it to whatever I'm doing. So that is, is a non-answer, but that's, I think that's, that's, that's what came to mind. Oh, it's much, much more than a non-answer, for sure. It's almost like a million answers packed into a non-answer. <laughs> that's all Thich Nhat Hanh. All, all I do is repeat his books out loud. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Reflecting. Well, I guess you could have a worse source or a less right. helpful source. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. I know I want to throw it over to Claudio, but before that, would you mind giving me and our listeners an example of setting an intention before you hop on a call? So I'm thinking like, how similar is this intention to something like the Buddhist practice of right speech? Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, and, and there's no right answer here. I'm curious about, of course. could you give me an example, maybe something recently that yeah, you did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before you're in this call, for example, that's a, that's one an easy one. A really fun way that I like to apply mindfulness of the Christian is do this thing that we call micro practices, which is like tiny ways to do your practice that take only a few seconds, right? So this one, for example, three breaths. And this is what we're talking about. It's like why we'll get into it later. This is a concept that I learned from the SIY community. A micro practice is a way to engage with practice in a way that's not, not formal, that is like woven into your life. You know, it's, it's similar to like, I go and do legs in the gym, which I don't, I'm not a gym person, but like some people that go to the gym, <laughs> go do legs for an hour versus I'm going to take the stairs to my meeting on the 10th floor. That is, you know, like uh, woven into your day life. So micro practice, three breaths. Instead of sitting for half an hour before a call, I just simply take three breaths. The first one to gather my attention. The second one, to notice how my body is arriving in this moment. And the third one, a version of the question, what is most important right now? It could be, how do I want to show up for this conversation? It could be, how do I want to answer this phone call? Right. So anything to set an intention, however you want to define that. So for all of us here and those who are listening, we can just engage in that right now. It's very simple. When I invite you to Close your eyes, if that feels comfortable or not, have them open. 
And just take one long deep breath. And as you exhale, you simply notice how your attention is landing on your breath, becoming aware of your breath. And then with your second inhale, whenever it comes, you can notice your body as you inhale, become aware of the body. Notice what's here. And as you exhale, simply hold it with care. And with the third breath, you can simply ask yourself, how do I want to be present for this conversation or for you who are listening to listen to this podcast? And just notice what comes up. There's no wrong answer. That took longer because I was running you through it, but it takes 10 seconds at most. When the phone rings, you know, going back to in the Plumbers Monasteries, one thing that I like a lot is when you're in any building, there are clocks that chime every 15 minutes. And they call them bells of mindfulness. When the clock chimes, everyone has to stop, drop, I mean, not drop, drop, like just pause anything you're doing and take a couple mindful breaths. Just interrupt the automatic, the autopilot thinking that's running through all our minds. So it's funny, you're like in the dinner, at the dining hall, having dinner, everyone's like talking, and then suddenly you hear the chime and the whole thing stops. Even if you're like mid-sentence, you pause and then carry on speaking and it's like nothing happened. It's just like weaving the pauses into your daily life. Another way, like my computer, not while Zoom is open, I learned that, but my computer just kind of shuts down every 20 minutes for the same purpose. So I, so I pause, you know, whenever the train of thought. So it's a, it's a simple ways to very practical, applicable ways to just bring practice into your day to life. And what, how I think of that is it's helpful as I start to practice to have a boundary. Cool. I'm going to sit for five, 10, 20, whatever many minutes you want to sit. And I'm going to just do that. Right. But as we evolve in practice, I think it's better to, or helpful to forget that boundary. It's invented. You know, like there's no bound between sitting, practice and getting on the subway. Life is the field of practice. That's how I think about it. I'm CDO, that's OCD, but in order like it should be, you know, like so I'm very disciplined. I have that like, built in, which sounds like a good thing until it's not, right? So, so making space for the process hasn't been a challenge. Getting past my blind spots, it's for sure the challenge, you know, because there's moments where the pause feels wrong and it's when I need it the most, you know, when I, when I am one of the many edges of my practices, you know, like when, when there's anger, when there's control, when there's, you know, some of these like neurotic behaviors that I have many of, when those show up to break through the tunnel vision that they bring is for me the biggest challenge. Like I just told you, like, sure, my computer, I, it sounds so peaceful. This guy's working on his computer, the thing turns off and he just sits. And But when I'm in the middle of like trying to figure out something in the computer, Right. I'm like, why did you stop? <laughs> like it comes up. So to break through the habitual patterns that are deeply rooted because I've had in my entire life, that I think will continue forever to be a Like I get less bad at it, but that's the most I can expect. You know, uh, I fail better at it, but that's it. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's like any of our habits. They bring light, but they also have a shadow side. Being disciplined is helpful until I need to let go 
or need to adjust and need to be flexible. And then it sucks. <laughs> right? So break, breaking through the inertia of my deep, deeply rooted habits is the hardest thing, I think. And especially if you have that engineering mind, right? Ooh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> it's, there's so much suffering in there because there's there's so much. It's great. You know, it's great because I don't really find it challenging to stay organized. What I find it challenging is when life says, you know what? No, it's going to be this way. And I'm like, but, but no, I told you it was supposed <laughs> to be like this. And life is like, dude, what are you talking about? I'm life. It's going to be this way. Shut up. And it's such, it's such a challenge. Yeah. It's such yeah. a challenge. Uh, yeah. Claudio, how did you meet Luis? I'd love to know that story. You know, it's funny. I took the uh, Search Inside Yourself program and I really liked it. I enjoyed it. I reached out to the to Brandon Brandon Reynolds, right? And he's in charge of of the development of the training for the teachers, right? I, I forget what his current title is, uh, yeah. but his head teacher or something of that stature. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I invited him to the show. Brandon Brandon was very generous. He and he responded. He's like, you know what? I'm really busy, but I've got this guy. I think they should talk to him because Brendan also comes from the Plum Village lineage. Yeah. Right. So Brendan actually, um, yeah, he he referenced Luis, and then I reached out to Luis, and Luis responded, and then we had a conversation, and here we are. So what is are. what is search inside yourself? It sounds like that was the that was the the connection. Yeah. Uh, right. The nexus. Yeah. Search so on yourself, which I'll, I'll say is why it's just easier to say it that way, is a program, very interesting program that was born in Google. I forget now how many, but maybe 12 years ago. I don't know. By one of Google's first employees who spent a lot of time developing a program to do what we're talking about, to weave mindfulness into the workplace at Google from within Google. Start as a thing within the company. And it grew so much that it ended up becoming a separate entity. It's now, it used to be a nonprofit. We're now switching, I think. I don't know how public this is, but I, I think it'll switch soon to a, to a, whatever. It is now not Google. <laughs> it's somewhere yeah, else. Right. And they have Google as one of their main clients. And it is an emotional intelligence training for leadership, for the workplace, based on mindfulness and neuroscience. So they got the big wigs in mindfulness and neuroscience and psychology and business and develop a curriculum that at its, its biggest form is a two-day program. It's like a very, very uh, broad initiation into the world of mindfulness and applied mindfulness, both intrapersonally and interpersonally, going through many of the things that we might be touching on today. And they, they have since developed a few other programs and they serve mainly, you know, the corporate world, offering mindfulness applied to their workplace. I had been going to Blue Cliff, which is a monastery from Plum Village that's here in New York, a couple hours from New York, a lot. At some point, I asked one of my friends from there after I had, I had helped organize a retreat there. And I was like, how do I make this my job? How, how, <laughs> how does one go about that? And then my friend Ellie was like, talk to my man, Brandon. And so I emailed Brandon, became like email friends. And then shortly after they offered, they, they train. So, so they have 
internal teachers within SAY. They also train internal company teachers for different companies that they work with. And they also train people like me, just random folks from the world who want to teach this. And I got certified to teach this program a number of years ago, 20, I don't know, 15, 16, I forget the year. It was like the open the door from just teaching within the Plum Village tradition or working within the tradition to, to a more formal capacity of offering these, tra- these teachings and, uh, and an approach to doing so professionally, which is what led to where I am today. So this program is all about bringing emotional intelligence and mindfulness into the workplace, into corporate leadership positions. I guess, you know, emotional intelligence, just the word itself, has caught on, right? It's a very buzzy word right now, just like mindfulness is. What is emotional intelligence? The way I understand that term these days is capacity to recognize, engage with, and make space for my own emotions, and also those of others. And from having that information or using that information to inform the choices I make. It's what enables me to shift from moving in autopilot, from being driven by these habits that I've told you about, to being like, oh, wait, I don't have to do this this way. I can do it this other way. Or even before, just to have a capacity to say, here are other options to go about life that are not the ways that I, quote unquote, that's just how I am. That's how I understand it. That's a beautiful definition right there. And how... You know, for uh, I bet you there's listeners out there that are working professionals, you know, working some, I imagine, for some big corporations, maybe some working for small businesses. How does this practice of emotional intelligence and mindfulness, how how can it potentially make somebody a more mindful or conscious leader or worker? or team leader, or big leader, whatever whatever the L, little L or big L. I would encourage all of us to think about leadership not as coming off our titles, but from the opportunities we have to affect positive change. Like I can be the intern if I have a great idea and I have a chance to talk to the CEO and be like, hey, CEO, how about this thing? If I communicate it in a way that's appropriate and effective, I can change the entire company potentially, or at least my team, or at least my day, you know? So it's uh, leadership for me is not tied to my title. So that's where I'll start for all of us listening to not leave this, oh, cool. When I get to be manager, when I get to be, no, 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 you can do it right now. You can be a leader right now, wherever you are. So that's one thing to, to think about. That's very empowering right there for people. I see it as such. Maybe because I grew up in a country where nothing works the way it should. Uh, so you had you had to like like nothing like when I moved to the US that things things kind of make sense. You know, I was like suspicious. I was like, nah, it's impossible. <laughs> really, it's impossible <laughs> yeah. that I filed yeah. this thing to get a document and I got the document I asked for. Nah, <laughs> there's, there's that catch here. Really, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I I think I, I have I have this like. From just from your survivor to being from like this natural tendency to be like, oh, how do I, how do I, how do I just take ownership of the thing that I have to get done because no one else is going, I'm, I'm going to have to fight <laughs> the system just because I'm from where I am from. That's my uh, default. That's well, all not helpful sometimes, right? Going back to the question, which I completely <laughs> sidetracked, I see self awareness as a key component of emotional intelligence. And it's not 
that, that it's not that I, I see it. If you go to the like the source of these ideas, which is Daniel Goldman, one of the first proponents of this concept, who wrote the book aptly named just that, emotional intelligence. Self-awareness is at the core of this. Because if I don't, if I don't, if I can see it, I can't work with it. Right. So being aware of my own emotions is deeply linked with mindfulness. I don't see it happening in another way. Maybe it's because I'm biased for <laughs> this work. Right? Like if, if I practice mindfulness and I cultivate this capacity we discussed at the beginning to pay attention with curiosity, with interest, with discernment, with kindness, then I can see what's happening within me. And then I can go to self-management, which is, well, how do I want to go about this thing that I'm noticing? How do I want to go about that? Every time I see this person, I get so angry or I get so annoyed or I get so frustrated or excited or what have you, whatever that is. So being aware of my inner states and resources and, and, and dispositions is like I'm writing my own user's manual. And then that skill, what's, it's a cool two for one. When I have that skill, I can apply that to others. I can get to talk to Lance. I can talk to Claudio and say, oh, I see his face and I perceive. Because the reality is like our, the world around us is perceived through the lenses of what our perception is imposing on us. So if I have learned to recognize sadness, anger, frustration, joy, excitement, doubt in myself, I can see in you too, because what I'm seeing is a thing that looks like what I know within me. So if I don't know myself, I can't know you. And it's a wonderful opening of an amazing channel to tune into, of getting to know what's happening for me, what's happening for you, getting to fail at it, because I fail at it a lot, most often. But then through that, getting feedback, oh, no, that didn't mean he was upset. That means he was tired. Cool. Noted. And we can even, I mean, going even further, like as an immigrant in the U.S., you know, coming from a culture that is so different, having to learn how to code switch. And by virtue of that, having to having a chance to learn how, oh, this person is from this context. So this thing means this thing for them. It doesn't mean that thing for me. You know, like it, it's, it's just an endless source of, of insight. I'm never bored, never bored. I'm always like, oh, wow, look at that. That's cool. Not always pleasant, but always interesting, you know. Mindfulness Off the Cushion is sponsored by the Austin Mindfulness Center, the premier mental health counseling center in Texas for mindfulness-based therapy, education, and coaching. If you're an individual or couple struggling with stress, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, or you're just looking to better equip yourself to gracefully navigate these turbulent times, you can visit us online at austinmindfulness.org and request an appointment today. I love how you touched on this idea that there is no self-management or there is no self-regulation without self-awareness. As an engineer myself, having a one, two, three process is very soothing for me. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to set two and three to the side. I'm not going to worry about it quite yet. Let me focus on number one. And I love how you, and, and we've said many times on this podcast that there are many doors into mindfulness or into the world of mindfulness, but just to paint one path, it sounds like you're suggesting 
that if we practice mindfulness, we have at least a chance to achieve (laughs) self-awareness. And once we have achieved self-awareness, I'm saying this with a grin, if you can't hear it, (laughs) then, then we will then discover and achieve and perhaps embody emotional intelligence. Am am I making this too elementary? (laughs) No, then you you get there, you become enlightened and you won. (laughs) Game (laughs) over. Nice. The size of Lance's smile, like mischievous (laughs) smile when he was saying achieve must be conveyed. Let the record show. It's called practice for a reason, right? It's not called perfect. You know, there's no achieving this stuff. It's cultivating it. So I do, I do think that by engaging with this practice, I can cultivate my capacity for self-awareness. And I, I'm a big fan of Pima Children as well. She has like a like no BS and like telling me how it is. And she's like, well, when I <laughs> a book I read recently, paraphrasing something to the effect of, well, when you engage with a practice, all you find out is how much of its opposite you have. When I cultivate patience, I find out how impatient I can be every time. But that goes to the heart of another very important idea that we speak of in Buddhism, non-duality, which is also sounds like, oh, what is, but it's very practical. If I get to know a thing, I immediately know what its opposite is. So if I cultivate my capacity, if I meet that annoying, petty habit of mine, I can get to know how to not do it because it's the opposite. You know, I I love, like, I use the example often of if I put my hand in water, I immediately know how it is to have my hand dry because it is not this. (laughs) It is the complete opposite, right? So so whenever these habits come up, whenever these emotions come up, by holding them with compassion, with curiosity, I can get to find out not just what they're about, but also what's on the other side because they come together. And so I find it's a wonderful practice that we get to cultivate and then forget about and then come back and then forget about. And then, and that's, it's a practice. It's a, it's a, I was at a, a, at a sit a, a while ago and the teacher said, and you're following your breath and, Given you know the, the, the instructions, and at some point he said, "If you find yourself distracted, begin again." What a wonderful instruction! Begin again. This is what it is because we have to begin again because we're going to forget. So yeah, I don't think it's achievable. I think we just uh, cultivate it. If Buddha had to practice when he became enlightened, what's left for us? We yeah, we gotta keep going. We gotta keep going. <laughs> That's, uh... And and I love I love the word that you're using here, which is cultivate, right? And we why I love that word is because I immediately think of uh, farming, right? Or being out on the dirt. And mm-hmm. guess what? You have right. to first of all, like when you plant a seed, you you don't just like throw the seed there and then walk away because you know you're not giving that seed the optimum chance for its growth, for its potential. So you plant the seed. But first, you got to dig a little bit of hole in there. You plant it, then you cover it, and then you got to water it. And then, you you know, you got to, but that alone, that you can't just stop with water. What if there's like pests or or bacteria? So you have to like care for it. You have to be aware of its environment under which the, that seed is going to grow. And then if you get a luck, if you're lucky enough to see it sprouts, right? 
then you're like, oh my goodness, I have to care for this even more. Right. And that's like that motivation where you begin tasting the benefits of this practice and you begin seeing those blind spots when you begin seeing, oh, this is that anxious mind of mine. Oh, okay. I can be with this anxious mind of mine. And on the other side of that anxious mind, there is that calm mind. Oh, there's anxious mind and calm mind. And the source of both is the same. It's the mind. That's beautiful right there. Right? So just remember, and this is hard, because we want to plant the seed and walk away. Right. And or, or we want somebody else to garden it, right? Or whatever. <laughs> or can someone like, just buy the product and bring it to my <laughs> exactly. doorstep? Yeah. Or you so. want the yeah, or you want the finished the finished yeah. plant. But even right. even that finished plant, you still need to care for it. You still need a lot of attention and intention. So this points to the the daily work. Daily in the daily discipline. And I'm sure they both of you with that engineer in mind, you guys, you have that discipline, right? For me, that's always been my struggle. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't have that that engineer in mind, that discipline yeah. mind. I'd love to get your take on something, Luis. And first of all, thank you so much for being on this program. I love the elegant ways in which you're you're sharing some of this wisdom. It truly is resonating with me. And you know what? I'll tell you, I so much love this practice. It is, I adore it deeply. And human instinct is when you enjoy something so much, you just want to share it with the world, right? And I I do so much in Claudio. And that's really the whole point of this podcast. And yet, at the same time, no one likes to be sold anything, (laughs) right? Don't don't sell me anything, even if it could be something that truly changes my entire life for the better and all of those who I love, et cetera, and on and on. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is to make mindfulness fun and engaging. How do we take this, what can be truly very, very serious and life-changing topic and turn it into something fun and playful? I came to New York and I discovered improv comedy which i had no idea about so i came here i was adjusting to living in the u.s the culture where i'm from which i mostly said bad things to this point it's also wonderful it is very 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 playful everything is a joke to us maybe that's why where we are where we are but it's very fun being there and i would notice that when switching languages I also switched mindsets. Like I, I think I'm much funnier in Spanish, for example, which you won't get to find out this time around. But you know, <laughs> so, but it, it doesn't. It has to do with the mindset that I'm in, right? So, so that was the first time that I touched on that awareness of, oh, there's a mindset that I can tap into to make things more, more enjoyable. You know, got into improv. Improv was my engineering's mind answer to how do I bring fun into life in English. And it's worked to some extent. But I say this because what I have found is the framing through which I approach what I'm doing really changes everything. And engaging in stuff like improv comedy or making music or or just doing something that brings me joy for the sake of doing it alone is a way to bring joy into my life. Now, how does that relate to practice? Because we're talking about like using practice, 
alleviating suffering. None of that sounds any fun. I chose to switch fun for curiosity, right? Which I think curiosity is, I think it's at the heart of fun. If I'm not curious about something, I'm not have, I can't have fun with it. I think that's my take. If I bring curiosity to the practice, meaning if I enable, if I look at things with the capacity to be in awe of their mere existence, then it becomes enjoyable. It becomes self-sustaining. Even when looking at pain, if I enjoy discovery, and if I'm talking, we're talking about like when I when I get angry or when I control something, I'm like, "Huh, look at that! Here it is again." And look, I did an X. Wow, it showed up here. What? Wow. Okay, great, cool. I guess we're doing that right now. It's like being cultivating, being malleable, being open, being flexible. So in, in engaging with the contents of awareness through curiosity for me, makes it engaging and enjoyable. Now, of course, there is a lot of potential for the practice to hold space for things that are really hard, right? If we're talking about real trauma with capital T trauma, with challenges, I'm not suggesting, cool, just make like fun of it. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that there is always a space to appreciate an enjoyment, a discovery quality into where I'm looking into, right? Which can also go along with compassion, which is what I think was important to hold suffering, right? Meditation is a family of bread. It's just not just one thing, right? So we can do focused attention and notice the breath. We can do open awareness and be more open about it. We can do loving kindness. So there's all kinds of flavors, right? Curiosity, fun, maybe just a layer of those. So, so I think it's important. I, I find that to be very important to approach the practice with a mind that is open to being surprised, to being in awe. And I don't, I haven't found a challenge between that and meeting suffering. They can both coexist because I can look at suffering directly and be like, okay, cool. I'm going to just like, look at this pain, right? Or I can choose to cultivate joy and nourishment, and space, and compassion, and kindness, all around. So there's so much more of that than the suffering kind of pales in comparison. And both, they're not mutually exclusive approaches. It's a really long answer. I'm sorry, but that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's what I had. <laughs> that is for practicing my own, right? Also, we're social animals. Practicing community is very important very engaging, getting a chance to share. If you haven't practiced in community, oh, wow, you're missing so much. You're about just, I'm so happy for you to discover that soon because getting to practice as a group, what I was describing at the beginning, going to the group the Friday night to which I uh, ended up being going, going to for many, many, many weeks and years after, the space that we can collectively create to hold suffering, to hold pain, and also to share joy, to share fun, to say, to share awe. It just compounds, it multiplies. So if, if I individually am approaching my practice with a sense, with an intention to include curiosity and awe, and then I get together with people who are doing the same, wow, what a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I love that. I really, that, that really resonates you start to answer your question by saying how important this mindset it is, how important mindset is 
when creating the intention to engage with, with, with things, either painful things or pleasurable things with a sense of curiosity. So like curiosity is like perhaps the, the one of the first ingredients that you need or that you may want to sprinkle, right? Or use whenever approaching something, either something pleasurable or something painful. So like you have this ingredient of curiosity and with curiosity comes this potential for awe. So maybe that's another ingredient, right? That they sprinkle, right? So you got the awe, you've got the curiosity and like immediately what I thought it was like beginner's mind, right? And like how important that little ingredient is in formulating this, this frame that allows you to perceive any experience, whether pleasurable or unpleasurable with something fresh, something new, right? It's very easy. And this is like Thich Nhat Hanh right here that I'm remembering. It's like, it's very easy for the heart to become stale like a flower. And whenever we notice that staleness in us, we can freshen it up with those ingredients that you've pointed to. And that's, I, I love, I love the tick when Thich Nhat Hanh used that word stale. It's like, yeah, <laughs> that is, that totally nailed, nails it for me. That resonated with me right there. So, right. so, you know, I think this is why I enjoy working with children and, and working, you know, on Saturday. So tomorrow I've, I'm going to be working with two groups of children, six to nine year olds and 10 to 13 year olds. And what I absolutely, traditionally I work with adults. What I absolutely love about working with children is they can tap into this a, a little easier. They're, they're just a little more nimble. Their hearts are not as stale as as <laughs> older adults. <laughs> yeah. So that's important right there. And thank you for sharing that, Luis. It's a beautiful summary, Claudio. And to add one more quote from Tignan Hanno, which we shared mainly today. He would often say, there are always reasons to be happy at any, at any moment in your life. And I would hear them be like, what? Don't you talk about? No, no, no. There are moments where I have to, I, I am supposed to be unhappy. That is, and, and I, was, I found so much resistance hearing that phrase. But when I slow down and I pause, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I might be having a hard time, but I look at the window. It's beautiful sunlight coming into my apartment and then well, I can go out after this interview and, and then take a walk and enjoy the sun in my face and, and pay attention to my experiences. And there's something to enjoy right now. Always for anyone. There's always something to enjoy right now, even in the middle of a challenging context, right? Which is a hard pill to swallow, but I, I have found it to be very true don't take my word for it. I encourage all of us to go find out. But yeah, it's a thing to test, to try out. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that Thich Han, this is not a person that came from like a lavish, well-to-do where, you know, flowers were cast down upon, you know, the, the street where he walked on. There was poverty, there was death, there was war, there was famine, there was you know, this is Vietnam in the 60s, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, right? A lot of suffering. So 
that tells me something that even amidst that, he was able to practice this and and spread and 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 allow others and teach others how to practice it. Not easy. So, Luis, do me a favor. Tell me where our listeners can find you if they want more Luis in their lives. Well, careful what you wish for. Um, but uh, <laughs> there's a website, yoga.co. That's J-O-G-A dot C-O. If you're curious about what we talked about today, this approach, the practice that is, you know, like I, I, I try to combine, well, something we haven't touched on, which I might be helpful to, because we talked a lot about Plum Village, which as Claudia was saying, you know, like I related to his tradition, to the enhanced tradition, because I also come from a country that is currently going through a very challenging situation. And I saw I, it, it, the emphasis on community and communication was very meaningful to me, right? And But if you look it up, if you, it's a community that from the outside or from the surface can seem a bit laxed in comparison with other traditions in the, in the Buddhist, you know, umbrella, whatever, you know? And, and I definitely hit that or felt that. And at some point got really involved with the Vipassana traditions from Burma, which are at the source of IMS and Spirit Rock, many, many schools that are now here in the U.S., Jack Cornfield and uh, Sharon Salzberg, many, many great teachers have come from that, from that lineage, ended up in Burma for a while studying with them. Talk about a stern, <laughs> you know, like really disciplined tradition also, but there's not like, it's, it was amazing. It was incredible, right? So there's a, there's a massive container of discipline that comes from that tradition and and what i'm trying to get to is like this i have found myself drawn to walk the line between two things in most things in my life like i'm an engineer but also my life may living through being a musician for many years so just playing music and i'm in english but also in spanish so, so but i'm also like thick on hand but also like the very strict vipassana situation you know the engineer but also like heart centered in this latter years not so much at the beginning of my life which is what drew me to the practice all to say that if you're curious about exploring you know how curiosity and discipline and and how fun and discernment can coexist i would love to work with you like i love i i do a lot of one-on-one coaching with uh with leaders so if you're a leader if you're a leader who are who's curious about how to bring the practice into your leadership style how to lead with this kind of woven into your day-to-day or to bring it to your team, to your company, to your group. I do also a lot of, I teach you SIY program and a few others that I, that I, that I have come up with. Also a lot of custom stuff for any of those things. Or if you know someone who's curious about it, or you just want my take on where to go for your practice, go to my website, joga.co, J-O-G-A.co. Book a time to chat, and we'll we'll chat. At the very least, I'll tell you why I'm not the guy, and then I can find you someone else. <laughs> <laughs> there you That's go. A, yeah. yeah, and yeah, I'm I'm very, I love working with people who are who spend so much time at work. I love working with folks who are trying to bring this into the workplace. Very interested in teaching Spanish a lot more. So especially if you have a Latin American team, I am so so interested to talk about that. Awesome. Thank you, Luis. I really appreciate your time today. Beautiful stuff. Luis, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, okay? It was a real joy to talk with you guys. Thank you so much.
I want to thank you, Louise, for sharing with us your journey into mindfulness. As we just heard, our mindset, the framing we use to approach what we're doing or feeling or experiencing, is a very powerful thing to tap into. If our mindset is fixed, rigid, and closed, this is how we will see the world. But if we can cultivate a mindset that relates to things in their true nature— as open, fluid, flexible, malleable, and with the potential to be surprised, this can be so freeing. Thank you, Louise, for reminding us of this. Now, as we look ahead to our next guest, we welcome Neil Hughes, a very wise person and psychotherapist who, since 1987, has been using the transformative power of awareness, acceptance, and mindfulness in his therapy practice.